uh, Colby a formal introduction. Colby remains obstinately hopeful that the church can still be a force for amazing good in the world. With his wife and co-pastor Kate, they started Sojourn Grace Collective nearly six years ago, a progressive Christian church in San Diego. Colby is the author of Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible and Homosexuality, and his next book comes out this spring titled The Shift. The Shift is a survival guide for becoming a progressively minded Christian. It's about the scary, confusing, and lonely journey of leaving or being kicked out of a conservative Christian community and finding yourself on the journey forward to a more progressive faith. The Shift has uh, chapters such as what to do when the idea of God stops making sense, what to do with your love-hate relationship with the church, what to do with your more conservative friends and family members who think you've gone off the deep end. But it's not just about surviving because the truth is a life more open, more loving, and more grace-filled leads to a flourishing life of thriving. The shift will be available April 21st, 2020, and today Colby is excited to announce that pre-orders are now available, and uh, Colby's going to share from, uh, from the shift today. So he's been a longtime friend and a dear inspiration to so many of you. So let's give a, a warm, well, welcome to Colby Martin. Come on up. We kind of dressed the same today. I do my best. You did great. I'm really proud of you. Hi. It's good to be here. Uh, How much slack do we have? Okay. On January 25th, 1975, in a German hillside, legendary United States jazz pianist Keith Jarrett spent five hours driving through the hillsides of Germany, making his way to the Cologne Opera House where a packed auditorium, a sold-out auditorium of 1,300 avid jazz fans were anxiously awaiting Keith Jarrett from the U.S. to come and perform for them. But after five hours of driving through the hillsides, Keith, with an ailing back, shows up at the opera house, only to discover that his request for a Bosendorfer 290 Imperial had gone unfulfilled. I know. It's a big deal, right? No That's okay. I didn't know what that was either. I guess it's a nice piano. There was no Bosendorf for 290 Imperial. All they had was this baby grand that was used for rehearsals. And the sustain pedal didn't work on this baby grand. The far keys on the left, which are your low keys, didn't work. The far keys on the right, which were the high keys, didn't work. All he had were about 40 keys in the middle to play with in a broken sustain pedal. Keith said, I can't do this. I'm tired. I hurt. This instrument is busted. How do you expect me to play this? And he wanted to bail. He wanted to leave. Vera Brands was the 17-year-old who arranged this whole evening and invited Keith to come over to perform, packed the house out with 1,300 people. And as Keith was attempting to leave on January 25th, 1975, Vera said, please, will you please just stay and play for us. And so Keith acquiesced, and he went out with a, in a back brace and improvised his guts out for an hour, and ECM Records recorded the whole event. They went on to put it onto a record called The Colne Concert, and to this day, it remains the best-selling jazz piano album of all time, selling over four million copies. 
Something magical happened that night. And on the recording, you can hear Keith groaning and moaning. You can hear the piano straining as he's trying to extract every last ounce out of the machine that he had to work with to create this evening of magic for these people. The Cone Concert, I recommend it. I had this album on loop as I wrote this book. And here's the reason why. Because I think in many ways, those of us who resonate with, identify, are some way connected to this experience of having left our more conservative Christian communities or maybe gotten kicked out of them and are finding our way through the dark of, I don't know, I still feel somewhat connected to the tradition of Christianity, but it's got to be with a more progressive bent to it. I think in many ways we can relate to the feeling of Keith Jarrett, feeling broken and beaten down and tired. And I think the piano, in some ways, for me, represents the Christian faith. Like, yeah, it's a kind of a, a messed up instrument at this point. <laughs> when you talk about the crazy, when you talk about, like, what do people most often think of when they think of Christian right now, it, it's not great. It's not great. And so this piano is kind of this busted up instrument that we have to work with. And the recording, the Cone concert, for me, represents this remarkable magic that can still be created when tired and worn down people give broken instruments a chance. And I think in some small way, I see myself as that like Vera Brands. I see Ryan and Hannah like Vera Brands. Those standing in the wings cheering you on saying, no, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. I know it's hard. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you're tired. I know. I know. But don't. Don't give up. That's why I think churches like this matter so much, by the way. I think churches like ours back home, Sojourn Grace, matter so much because there is a lot of good reasons to give up. There's a lot of good reasons to leave. There's a lot of good reasons to say, it's too hard. It's too painful. I'm too tired. I'm out. That would make a lot of sense. But to the extent that you might hear me this morning, or you might hear Ryan next week, or whatever faith community you're a part of, hearing you saying, keep going, I hope that's what you leave here this morning with. And good news, uh, you guys are pretty much all the way there in terms of resiliency, because after all, you are Arizona Cardinal fans. Okay, moving on. You know well what it's like to have your hopes up and to have them repeatedly dashed. Okay. I was, I, I was one of you for five years. I remember that pain well, and then I left. Uh, one of the things we like to do uh, at our church sojourn is to be mindful of our breath. So if you are uh, willing, I invite you to, if you want to close your eyes, that's, there's nothing magical about it other than that it helps sometimes eliminate distraction. But if you want to close your eyes and maybe sit up straight, maybe you've been slouching a bit and you haven't even realized it, maybe you scoot back a little bit in your seat, roll your shoulders just a bit to remind yourself, oh yeah, I've got a body and I'm here. I've got nowhere else to be but here right now. You're never not here. This is it. You're here. And maybe you would take a hand and, and place it on your, on, your, on your gut, on your belly, on your diaphragm. 
maybe you can, even from down there, you can feel the rhythm of your body. And, and if you would, through your nose, take a deep breath in with me. And let it out. And if this is a practice you're not entirely comfortable with, it might be tempting to breathe as quietly as you can because you're uncomfortable making sounds. Or maybe you have really bad coffee breath. But we're going to do it again, and I'd like to try and hear you on the exhale if you're willing. Take a deep breath in and out. Breath is a it's a gift. There is truly nothing that you have done or will do to deserve or earn the next breath. It's just there. Suddenly, when you're ready, it's there all over again. It's a gift. And for me, being mindful of my breath is a way of being mindful of my life, which is also a gift, which is grace. And so we're here, God, and it's a gift. And I'm thankful. Take one more deep breath in and out. So I grew up in a religiously conservative environment. I like to say I'm a recovering Baptist. And for me in this context that I grew up in, there's a very particular way to think about and talk about salvation. And salvation simply meant to procure a place and a positive eternal destiny as opposed to a negative one. Salvation meant to be saved from the wrath of God, to be saved from the penalty of sins. Uh, and and the, the mechanism by which this salvation might be procured was through a, a concept called faith, which was essentially a way to talk about believing the right things. And so the formula was simple. If you believe the right things, then you have faith. If you have the right faith, then you have salvation. I remember um, shortly after turning five years old, I was in the top bunk of a, of a bunk bed, and my dad had just tucked me in, turned the light off. He started to walk back down the hall, and I shouted out his name, Dad, Dad, Dad! And he comes walking back in, now what is it? Turns the light back on. And I said, and I spring up into my bunk bed and I said, Dad, I'm ready. I'm ready to invite Jesus into my heart. I want to become a Christian. And now, if that happened uh, today in, in my household with one of my four boys, I, I, would, I would probably just write it off as them delaying bedtime, which happens often in our house. But my dad, good fourth generation Baptist that he was, was delighted at this request by his five-year-old son. After all, what's, what's delaying sleep for five more minutes in exchange for an eternity with God? And so he leads me through some version of what I think we call the sinner's prayer. You might be familiar with uh, that idea, which obviously at five years old, I had no idea what that was or what that meant. I had just sat through enough Sunday school classes to hear that it was important and I wanted to do it. And so I did it. And so for me then growing up, my conception was, I therefore was saved as a result of my confession of faith. Faith, having the right belief about a particular thing, gets me uh, salvation, which means my destiny is locked uh, in, uh, that I will get an eternity of peace um, after I die. 
For about the past decade of my life now, as I have uh, been in lots of different contexts that I describe as progressive, progressive Christianity, it's not the best term. Neither one of those terms fully encapsulate it, but it's, it's a close approximation. We at least kind of get what we're talking about when we use that phrase. For the past decade, I have interacted with hundreds of people who have been raised in similar ways uh, as I was, as I just described, who also had these sort of foundational ideas of what salvation was and what faith was. Faith is believing the right things, and salvation is procuring some sort of eternal destiny of positivity as opposed to negativity. Now, exactly what you had to believe, what the particulars of... uh, were required for salvation, that varies. Depends on how you grew up, where you grew up, what denomination. But the basic idea is believe the right things. And once you get those right, lock them down. And this procures for you your salvation. And this is what faith was for me for most of my life. You take all the things that you believe about God, Jesus, the Bible, humanity, you put them all inside this box, and you put a label on it, and that's your faith. My faith is the things that I believe. But then what happens is that we, maybe we grow up, uh, or maybe we move to different parts of the world, or maybe events happen in our life, and, and suddenly we find ourselves opening that box up, and we we might take things out every once in a while and think about it, <laughs> look at it, turn it, ask questions about it. We might discover that suddenly I, 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 that doesn't really make sense to me anymore. And, and we might put it back in our faith box, but it, now it's slightly differently. Or we might decide this is bogus altogether and we just chuck it in the trash bin. And a lot of people, the things that they take out of this Faith box, a list of things they used to believe and, and, and either change altogether or chuck are things like, you know, I'm just, this is a, a completely arbitrary list. If this is you, great. If it's not you, also great. It's your life. I don't care. Do your thing. But for some people, the idea that God created the world in six literal days, they took that out of the box, like that just doesn't match to what we know about the world. That's gone. Uh, take out other things like, man, I used to think all the events in the Bible were historic, like, that there was really a whale that swallowed a guy named Jonah, that there really was a flood where animals were saved, and I can't anymore hold on to those as like, the, like I'll, I'll put them back in as metaphor, or I'll chuck them out altogether, whatever. Uh, we might take things out like how, I've always been taught that men are slightly better than women. Yeah, just, a, just, just enough to make the decisions in the house. God still loves us both, but men are all, like, and that suddenly, like, what is this? This is absurd. Or, or, or that LGBTQ people are somehow uh, abominations to God and not worthy of being called love children of God. And so we start to take, my point is, we take these things out of our box and, and, and these beliefs, and we end up discarding them or changing them. And what happens is one day we look at our, our, our box with this dusty label of faith on it, and we end up having questions and thoughts in our mind such as, I think I, I think I lost my faith. Or things like, man, my faith just isn't what it used to be. Or we ask the question, what happened to my faith? 
And this is all dependent upon this idea that faith is a thing that we possess. That faith is something we have that is made up of the things that we believe. And I think this is a problem. I think this way of thinking about faith is a problem. I think it misses the larger point of what faith is. Because as long as we conceive of faith as a thing that we possess, then now it's subject to deterioration, it's subject to alteration, and it's subject to altogether loss. But it's actually even worse than that. Because not only were we told that the point in life was to believe the right things and then hold them uh, with certainty, but we were told that God's feelings about us were dependent on whether or not we had the correct beliefs. And so if we believe the right things and we believe them with certainty, then God was well pleased with us. But if we didn't have the right beliefs or we questioned them or we let go of them or we doubted them in any ways, then we were told that somehow God was displeased with us. And so then one, what happens is some random evening in November, you, in a moment of introspection, sit with these sorts of statements. Oh, I lost my faith. What happened to my faith? And it gets connected to how God thinks and feels about us. And we freak out for kind of good reason, because we've been told all these things. And this freak out is often connected to what I call the shift. Sometimes the freak out leads to the shift, moving away from conservative Christianity towards something more progressive. Sometimes the shift happens as a result of life, and the freak out comes later as we realize that our box that used to be full of things we held with certainty now is relatively empty. And so the shift, when we leave or get kicked out and we are conservative communities and we find ourselves towards more progressive expression, this is, this is what I have tried to write a book about. I've tried to help people in this journey because this journey is full of fear and confusion and chaos and loneliness. And I think, and this is how I start the book, I think that one of the most helpful things when we are on this journey, one of the most helpful things is to reimagine or maybe rediscover what faith means, what it means to have faith, what it means to do faith. Because if we continue thinking that faith is a thing that I have filled up with a collection of beliefs, if we continue with that basic understanding, then as we move towards progressive Christianity, we're simply going to just want to put new things back into the box, new and better beliefs, new and updated beliefs, beliefs that are more uh, commonly held with people, whatever. But we're still stuck in the same idea of the box full of beliefs that I promise you five years from now, you're going to pull them back out and be like, what the... That's, how did I get there again? So we have to rethink faith. And so now, here's how I like to think about faith. I suggest that faith is maybe a little bit like my cat. Her name's Nala. And Nala loves to wander around our house all throughout the day. That's not true. She's kind of lazy. Not all throughout the day. At certain moments in the day. She wanders around the house. And when she wanders, it's because she's looking for where the sunlight is coming in through the windows so that she can find the pool of light, lay herself down, open up her belly, and sleep for three more hours. 
And then she'll wake up from the nap because she gets cold because the sun has moved on. So she wanders to a different part of the house where the sun comes through. I think faith might be a little more like that, where we are conscious of, we're aware of, we think, we, we perhaps can imagine that out there there is this brilliant light, and we are constantly turning toward it as best as we can, turning toward it. Richard Rohr calls it the necessary but, but, but small opening of the heart, just a, just a small opening of maybe something is out there. And I think we get a lot closer to maybe what faith really is when we think of faith more as a verb than a noun. If it's a noun, if it's something we possess, we have, then it's subject to deterioration and alteration and loss. But if it's a verb, it's something we do, we practice. We practice this turning. We practice this opening. For me, faith is much more about a, a humble opening of ourselves. You might even call it a, 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 a trust. When Nala finds the light and she just exposes her belly, she is, she is trusting that the light is good and the light has her. This, I think, is what faith is. This humble trust. Something we do, we practice. The ancient Greeks had a word for this, which is kind of fun for me. The ancient Greeks had a word for this humble trust, this opening it's this Greek word, pistis. I know, it's funny. It's totally funny. You can laugh. Pistis. It's even spelled as funny as it sounds. Uh, also, fun fact, in our house is a stuffed animal, a bear, that I gave to my wife when we were dating, uh, and I named the bear Pistis. And I'm not going to tell the story of that because it's, it's a different sermon, uh, but it's a great word, guys. Pistis. And it, it means this. It means a deep trust. It means a willingness to be vulnerable, to open yourself. Piss this. Two quick stories on how... Oh, and uh, by the way, the writers of the New Testament loved this word. They used it all the time. They loved it. They found it to be extremely helpful for articulating this new vision that Jesus had for humanity. They loved piss this. So here's a couple stories, both from the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. One night, Jesus is invited to a dinner with a Pharisee named Simon. Uh, and so Jesus, as people who are in full-time ministry understand, never turns down a free meal. Uh, so Jesus shows up and is enjoying this uh, meal with a bunch of Pharisees. And suddenly a woman walks in, which already in that time and in that culture was a little bit sketchy. Like the most conservative of conservative uh, gatherings were, were just for the men to have. And so a woman walks in, but this wasn't just any woman. This was a woman that most people in the room knew to be a sinner. We don't really know what that meant, but we can have some good guesses. So this sinner of a woman walks into this dinner, comes behind Jesus, sits down behind him, starts weeping, and I think you know the story, right? Weeping and, and, and washing Jesus's feet with her tears and drying it with her hair. She has this, this, this bottle of, of expensive oil and she breaks it open and, and, and washes and cleans Jesus's feet and hair. It's just this beautiful act of hospitality. And of course, Simon the Pharisee gets all incensed about it. And so Jesus tells a story about this landowner, the two people in debt, yada, 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 who, who's more appreciative forgiveness, and oh, it's the person who owed more. Yeah, you're right. Jesus' whole point is, look, Simon, I came into your house, and you didn't show me any hospitality, and you didn't do any of this kind things, and yet here's this woman who is showing this great 
display of humility and vulnerability, super vulnerable, right, for her to walk into this space and do this thing. And then Jesus, in front of everybody, and so that everybody could hear, turns to this woman and says, your pistis has sozoed you. Go in Irene. Don't worry, some of those are also Greek. So, like, <laughs> like what is he saying? Your pistis has sozoed you. Go in Irene. A couple days later, Jesus is walking to um, a nearby city, and this man Jairus comes to him, and in a frenzy, Jairus says to Jesus, would you please come to my house because my 12-year-old daughter is sick. I think she's dying. Would you please come and heal her? And so Jesus begins walking towards Jairus' house, and this massive crowd begins to gather around as though he's Justin Bieber coming out of Walmart, and he's trying to fight through this crowd, and there's this woman in the crowd, this woman who for the last 12 years has been unable to stop her bleeding. She's exhausted all of her resources to find medical solutions, and nobody has any help for her. And something inside of her thinks, maybe this Jesus person that I've heard about, I, I don't know, I've tried everything else, why not? Why not try this? And so she works her way through this crowd, and, and, and she finds her way up to Jesus, and she's able to just barely touch just his robe, just the cloak of Jesus. And suddenly, two things stopped. Her bleeding stopped, and Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped and he said, whoa, who touched me? And his disciples were like, bro, it's the San Diego version, bro, there are like millennial, literally millions of people here. Tons of people have touched you, bro. What are you talking about? And Jesus was like, no, 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 this was different. Somebody touched me. And the woman realizes, probably talking about me, again, vulnerably says, yeah, it was me. It was me. I did it. And then she explains why. She explains that I have bled for 12 years and nobody knew why and I touch you and I'm healed. I, Thanks. Sorry. And Jesus turns and in front of everybody, and so everybody could hear, says, your pistis has sozoed you. Go in Irene. Now, I don't want to give Bible translators too hard of a time. It's a tough gig, y'all. Trying to figure out what some dead language meant and figure out how to make it make sense in your language. But every once in a while, I think it's, it's okay to criticize translations. Uh, most of the time, when English translators come across the Greek word pistis, which I reminded you, the New Testament writers loved and used often, most of the time when they come across pistis, translations go with the word faith. Faith. Your faith has sozoed you. Which isn't, uh, on one hand, isn't that bad of a translation. Because faith does ha have this sense of this, uh, this openness, this trust, this sort of faithful trust. So faith does work, yes. But unfortunately, over the years, Christianity has come to prioritize the idea that the most important thing to God, the most important thing to God is what we think between our ears. Somehow Christianity has decided this. That the most important thing to the creator of the entire cosmos is a person's belief. And so when we read faith, 
we have, we have created in our minds this idea, like I said earlier, that faith is a thing that we have. It's a collection of beliefs. And so we read this, your faith has sozoed you, and we wouldn't be faulted for thinking, oh, well, Jesus is saying that some belief that the woman had was the thing that mattered in this story. And then you look at these stories and you realize, wait, there is no statement of belief. There is no declaration of a conviction. There is no assertion of a propositional statement that these women hold. These stories don't turn on them believing a particular thing. These stories turn on their action, on them doing a particular thing, on them making themselves open and vulnerable and humbly trusting. So when we read faith in the New Testament, um, author and scholar Pete Enns suggests if we would just take out faith and put trust in there, which is a probably a better sense of what pistis is, it would communicate a whole lot more accurately as we go through and read our Bibles. Your faith, your trust, your pistis has sozoed you. And sozo is another fascinating Greek word. Uh, it has a, a range of meanings, and it tries to incorporate this sense of being healed, being rescued. More often than not, translators go with the, the word saved, which is fine. But again, we read it now and we think some sort of eternal destiny on the other side of our earthly life. But sozo is more like here, now, being healed, being rescued. In fact, the most literal way to think of sozo is to be made whole to be put back together again. So yeah, I guess saved works in this context, but only if by saved we mean that Humpty Dumpty, when he fell off the wall, was saved by being put back together again. He made, wait, Humpty Dumpty, couldn't put, actually that ends sadly, doesn't it? They don't put Humpty back together again. Imagine if the story went differently, though. <laughs> then you could say Humpty was sozoed, saved, to be put back together again, to be made whole. All the kings... All the kings... Wait a minute. Why are king's horses trying to put an egg back together again? All the king... I can get, like, humans trying to put an egg back together, but horses have... Okay, that's really, I'm going to have to think about that later. Of course you couldn't put it back together, and you were using hooves for delicate egg pieces. That's never going to work. Okay. Your, your pistis, your trust has sozoed. Your trust has made you whole. This is what Jesus is telling these women. Your trust, your vulnerable action of making yourself open in this moment has brought you wholeness, has brought you healing, has brought you rescue. And the last Greek word here in this, the irene, simply means peace peace, which is a state of being that is unimpaired by suffering. It's unmoved by the storm. It's not free from conflict. That's impossible. But it's free of the negative impacts of the conflict. So Jesus says to these women, your trust, your choice to, to open yourself in this vulnerable way has made you whole. Go in peace. So this is what I think Jesus was saying to these two women. And I think what God wants to say to us today. 
is that peace is not a product of believing the right sorts of things that arbitrarily promise you paradise after death. Peace is not something that happens to you as a result of, quote, being saved by possessing particular convictions, by holding certain belief statements in our minds. Instead, I propose to you that peace is the condition, it is the state of being that arises when we settle in to a true connection with ourselves, with God, with love. And this connection, this integration can be described as wholeness. It's being restored, being put back together. Becoming whole, sozo, is a process of reintegrating all the fractured parts of us, Heart, soul, body, mind, all of it being made whole is to be sozoed. And here's the secret. This sort of wholeness, this sort of connection to ourselves, this sort of connection with the divine, I believe we find it. I believe we find it. Asterix. By find, I mean it has always been there. You are not disconnected from God ever. There is no bridge between you and the divine that somehow needs made up for. I think... You find this wholeness on the other side of becoming completely undone. Coming to the end of yourself. Coming to the point in your life where you're like, I realize now all of this hustle, this striving, this trying to make myself feel like I belong in this world, like I matter, all this work that I'm doing to try to earn love from people, from myself, all of this, I'm out. I can't do it. You just sort of turn over on your back and expose your belly to the light. That's when you find your wholeness. It's always been there. But we discover it through this process, this posture of openness and trust. In a word, we find it by faith. But not faith as in believing the right sorts of things. Faith as in choosing this posture of humble openness and trust. This sort of faith, the one that lays itself down in recognition of its own limitations, the one that lets go and holds loosely to whatever beliefs it may have, because beliefs come and go, they're always going to come and go. This sort of trust is like the trust of that baby back there in your arms who just relaxes into mom because it knows mom's got me. I'm all right. I'm all right. Our old formulations of this stuff were different versions of the idea that the correct ideas would somehow secure an eternal destiny for us peacefully in God's presence. But I believe what Jesus was trying to teach was that peace is available to us here and now, this life free of anxiety 
free of the suffering that plagues what it means to be a human and exist, and that this state of being is found not by thinking the right things, but through this process of being made whole again, by reconnecting with ourselves and God, and this happens through pistis, through trust. And odds are, if you're here this morning, then you are either in this shifting process, you are in this journey, or maybe you've already done it, or maybe you're on round two or three or four. Because as a friend of mine says, by the time you get to the top of one mountain, all you've done is prepared yourself for the next climb. There is no end, which is why we call our church sojourn, which just means a short stay, because life is just a series of short stays and movement and transformation. Odds are if you're here, you're either in the midst of or have experienced multiple shifts throughout your life. There's a lot of things that come up in those shifts. Loneliness, wondering, who are my people anymore? Where's my tribe? A lot of people lost their tribe in November of 2016. They woke up and they're like, I don't know who my people are anymore. A lot of people in the shift might be angered uh, at feeling bamboozled by past religious leaders and institutions and ideas. There's a lot of sadness at this loss of life that you used to have where things made sense. But I hope for you this morning this, that when the moments arrive, when you start to feel as though you've lost your faith, or like your faith just isn't what it used to be, I hope you remember that those sorts of thoughts are driven by a small and incomplete idea of what faith is. Because the spiritual life is not about believing the right sorts of things. I think faith is this posture of openness. It is a trust that you were okay and that God has got you. It is a trust, a trust of what is most true, which is that you are a loved child of God just as you are. And so should you, in the days to come, ask the question, what happened to my faith? Would you remember the answer is nothing. You've still got it. And it's working just fine. Thanks for being here. I was going to say, let's give Colby a hand, but you beat me to it. Um, Thank you, Colby, for sharing with us this morning. Our band's coming now. We're going to sing one last song together. As they prepare, I want to I lead us in a prayer and invite you to make, uh, make your seat a place of prayer here. If that means closing your eyes, um, whatever, uh, whatever helps you uh, enter a prayerful state. And uh, I want to give thanks and, uh, and pray together. God, thank you for, thank you for Colby his heart for you, his willingness to, to write, his willingness to share, and how much he means to, to so many people. We thank you for him and for Kate and their family and their church sojourn in, in San Diego. And God, we thank you that when we read these stories in the scripture, we're invited into that same story now. Jesus, you say to us right now the same way that, that you said to the women that Colby talked about. Your trust has made you whole. Go in peace. Free from anxiety and, and worry tearing you apart about 
uh, whether you've got uh, the statement of faith all figured out or what to make if you hear something that's challenging or so many of us, God, are raised in fear and, and, and uh, we believe that or we're taught that if we ask questions, if we express doubt about anything, if we think for ourselves, then somehow you cast us away and we're far from you. And thank you for Colby's message that wherever we are in that journey of deconstructing or reconstructing, trying to rebuild our faith and figure out what it is we really believe and what we want to live for, that Jesus, your message to us right now is your trust, your openness, your willingness to lay in the light is making you whole. Go in peace. Thank you for that beautiful message here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said.